So it's this sort of critical moment where we have to balance the rights of indigenous peoples, take account of environmental factors, and especially the food chains and the ecologies of animals, and give way to some extent this exploitation of resources. I'm Jonah Chester. I'm Clay Catlin, and you're listening to Animal Human. This show is a production of IU's College of Arts and Sciences and a proud part of the 2018 semester. Each episode, we talk with a different IU researcher to examine where we, as humans, belong in the animal kingdom. We also examine the interactions of humans and animals in art, literature, and science. In this episode, Jonas sits down with Dr. Stephanie Kane, a professor in the School of Global and International Studies. Dr. Kane researches the Arctic Circle and how the politics in an ever-changing region impact animals and humans native to the area. She's teaching a course this semester called Arctic Encounters, Animals, Humans, and Ships that examines the issue. Okay, yeah, my name is Stephanie Kane. I'm a professor in the Department of International Studies in the School for Global and International Studies in the College of Arts and Sciences at IU. I teach courses in environment and health. It's one of our six uh, concentrations in the international department, international studies department. Um, My research is on flooding. I study water in general and the relationships between humans and water, generally in cities. This last project that I'm writing about is about flooding and flood control in Winnipeg, Canada. And it's a way for me to understand how we as humans embed ourselves into the Earth's crust and how we rely on both geoscience understanding and engineering in order to create our cities. Very interesting. So you're teaching a class this semester called Arctic Encounters, Animals, People, and Ships. Can you tell me a little bit about that class? How exactly do those subjects intersect? The Arctic, as everybody knows, is on the top of our planet. And due to global climate change, it's warming at a more rapid rate than anywhere else in the lower latitudes. And it's a very complicated political space because you have eight different nation states. If you imagine turning the globe so you're looking at it from the top, there are eight different countries that border that space and so have some kind of territorial claim on parts of the water off their coast. And there are also many indigenous peoples living there. The peoples lived on ice, which is now melting. So... The sovereignty of combined indigenous people and nation states is complicated. And now that it's rapidly changing because the very terrain upon which people live and the space of the water is shifting, it creates a very different setup. So animals, of course, they're not really part of our politics, and, but they are affected by our governance regimes. And so the very rich and important ecology of the Arctic will be shaped by whatever humans do in the next few decades and hundreds of years, hopefully. One of the things that's happening is because the Arctic is opening up in the sense of becoming water rather than ice, 
people from lower latitudes who don't know how to live on ice like indigenous peoples think, ah, now we can go in there. Now we can take our ships in there and we can exploit mineral resources and we can shorten our time of travel between Asia and Europe and the United States. And so global markets will be able to start crisscrossing that space that will become open. Ships now still need, there's still a lot of ice. It's still mostly closed. The Northwest Passage is just beginning to open up. Big ships go in there with icebreakers. So I want you to imagine for a moment ships going in and breaking up the ice that's in their way and creating these huge hunks of ice that then stop the animals who might be crossing that space, that flat, icy space, um, from being able to access their migration routes, access their food sources. And the same with the Inuit, the indigenous people who live in the Canadian archipelago, for example, who have trails. For them, ice is not an obstacle. For them, ice is a normal way to get around. And so what happens when they encounter these gigantic container ships that are going through, or tourist vessels, or that have no emergency support. Um, so there's a lot going on. We're really at this critical moment. And in this class, we're going to study this relationship between the animals, the people, and the ships. So in this case of sort of industry versus the environment versus the natural wildlife of the area versus the natural habitats, obviously there's a lot of factors at play right now. How do you predict this battle, this dispute playing out over the course of, let's say, the next 10, 20, 30 years? What does the future look like for animals and humans in the Arctic area? Well, there are a lot of things happening. So there's the level of international law. And one of the important things that's happened for indigenous people is the, it has a terrible acronym, UNDRIP, the, the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which requires all governmental and, and non-governmental activity to consider the ways of life of indigenous peoples and include them in, in real ways, not after the fact, but before the fact, in designing the passageways and the new spaces that will be developed in the Arctic. So that has never existed before the late 20th century. That combines with the law of the sea, which is UNCLOS, which is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is very dumb when it comes to ice. And this is really the basis of the ice law project that I'm part of. And this course is very much drawing on the ice law project. But the idea is that the, the international laws of the sea basically say, well, if it's water and it's off your legal territorial coast that you have jurisdiction of, it's open. So when you think about it, what happens when you're an Inuit community and you have lived on this ice flow or this ice formation since time immemorial, which means since the time before there were laws, and it's melting? Do you automatically lose your sovereignty? Can ships say, well, I can go through there because after all, it's water? Right. So it's this sort of critical moment where we have to balance the rights of indigenous peoples, take account of environmental factors and especially the food chains and the ecologies of animals and 
give way to some extent this exploitation of resources, which a lot of people are talking about it as resource making. In other words, how do you have this frozen wasteland suddenly turn into a commercial venture? How is that going to happen? And who should have a say over what that happens? So the damage to not just the environment and ecological areas, but the native communities in the Arctic Circle as well, is this damage we've sort of already wrought? Is that permanent? Is there a way to reverse this? The Earth has been getting warmer. That's not a secret. It's not really in debate anymore. How do we, these communities, how does the environment bounce back from that? How do we adapt to it, basically? Or do we just sort of have to go with the flow from here on out and think of a new situation as opposed to hoping things can go back to the way they were 50 or 100 years ago? Well, that's a great question, of course, and that's what we'll be talking about because no one has the answer to that question or that set of questions, right? So clearly we're not going to make it colder because although it was in our power to make it warmer, it's not in our power to refreeze things. Although if the world was such that we could actually do the right thing, we might be able to slow down the warming and hence not go over the precipice, assuming that we have time and that we want to do the best we can within the time that we have. We have to adapt, as you say, and we have to adapt in a way that is environmentally sound and environmentally just, which means it has to involve social justice. Um, so there's a couple of different ways that people are thinking about. Uh, one is to create marine protected areas that we have had in other places. So, for example, there's one being created now in, in Lancaster Sound, a marine protected area, which means it's kind of like a no-go area where ships won't go. It happens that ships already aren't really going there, so that's one of the reasons why they picked it. But another reason is that it has a pollinia in it. Now, pollinias are these cool things that you only see in the Arctic. They're these spaces in the ice where warm water bubbles up. And because warm water bubbles up, animals come there and they can stick their heads up to breathe and, and they can eat. For Inuit, it, they're also places where they go to hunt because they know they will attract the animals. So we can find these rich ecological sites and we can try to protect them. We can also set off areas where we can say, okay, we're going to create infrastructures for shipping and we're going to attract these container ships and other ships going to go through these particular spaces. So we'll provide them with water and fuel and emergency care in the, these corridors. So they're designing some areas that will be protected and other areas that will be prepared with infrastructure to accept industrialization of some sort or another. So these are the kinds of things that we're looking to the future to do in a kind of rational and sustainable way. The ICE Law Project has to do pretty heavily with this. It's thematically very similar to the class you're teaching this semester. Can you kind of give our listeners an introduction to what that is? You mentioned it very briefly a little while ago, but just for those who might not be familiar. I'm sure most people are not familiar. <laughs> it's not a very gigantic project. It was started by a geographer named Phil Steinberg, who's at the University of Durham, who has brought together a interdisciplinary and international group of people to talk about this problem that the law doesn't really get the problem of ice. So 
when international law is written for the maritime world, it thinks in terms of land and water. And so how do you define your national sovereignty at the edge of your territory? Well, you go along the coastline and you go under the water and there's a little shelf there and then you can go X number of miles past that. So it thinks in terms of these land and water boundaries. Of course, land in itself isn't really as neatly divided as, as you'd see on maps, but at least it's there. So, but there's no consideration of ice. So ice as used as land, how do you think about people's rights when their land is disappearing because the ice is melting and the ice is melting because of the industrialization in the lower latitudes that, are, that is now circulating in the atmosphere? And so there is some global social responsibility happening there. Also, just the practicalities. You have ice shelves, you have all kinds of ice formations where there is ice, and it does work as land. I mean, ships can't bunk into it, and it is the sovereign territory of indigenous peoples. How do you draw the line? How do you think about ice as a legal, material substance that has to be accounted for. No one has done that. So he, the Ice Law Project brings together not only geographers, but people in, in maritime law, in culture, like me, I'm an anthropologist, political scientists, all kinds of different disciplines. I'm not, well, there are about 20 of us who are concerned with this problem from multiple directions and who come together in these sub-projects. So I'm, I'm on one of the six sub-projects. I'm on the um, mobilities and migration sub-project. And we think about animals, peoples, and ships, which is how I came up for the idea for the course. So you mentioned, was it UNDRIP, UN. Uh-huh. Which is Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. There we go. Love that. Love that uh, abbreviation. So aside from that, is the international community really taking any action right now? Because I understand the Arctic Circle right now is, as you mentioned and as you teach in your class, it's a very political, it's, it's a politically active zone right now because you have a bunch of people closing in who want rights to things like land, uh, natural gas that's in the area. So what is the UN and I guess organized nations doing to protect this if they're doing anything at all? Well, you have the Polar Council, which is an organization that is made up of not only the eight immediate countries, but a few of the countries that are kind of near the Arctic. And indigenous people, I don't think they can vote, but they do participate in that. So that is the um, one of the I think the central international body that's thinking through these things in a systematic way and putting out reports that frame the questions and and suggest directions for the future. You know, the Arctic has been a politicized space for a long time because it's a militarized space. So under the ice, U.S. and Russian submarines have been circulating for you know, since the Cold War. So there's a lot going on up there that we don't really know about. It's not as pristine as we might have thought. It's not like this is the first time industrialized or militarized actors have made use of that space. 
So you've done research on water around the world. You might not have done field research in the Arctic, but it's definitely an area where you're an expert in. How did you get into this field of research? It's very fascinating, but it seems very specific as well. I'm interested in the in the twists and turns that got you to where you are today. Yeah, that's a really long story that we need a separate interview for. And, and, and I knew you were going to ask me that. And so I've thought about one sort of moment in my trajectory that I could give you an example of what a twist and turn is. So I had always um, been a biology major and I'd always been interested in animal behavior. And when I graduated college, all I wanted to do was travel and see different places and, and go to different forests and environmental contexts, but I didn't have any money. And so I got a job. I got a series of jobs as a lab technician in neuropsychopharmacology labs, in which we experimented on mice and rats, which meant that we shot them up with drugs and then chopped off their heads and then did experiments to see all the work on uh, neurotransmitters that is now common knowledge. That was just at the very beginning then. It was in uh, I will. I won't even say what year. So I would work in a lab and I would save my money and then I would go off and travel. So there was this turning point where I had decided I can't keep working in the lab. I got I got to do my own research. So I went. I started graduate school and I. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I was experimenting, and I just decided to take Portuguese, and I got a scholarship to go to Brazil, and I was in the zoology department, and so my project was to record frog calls and bird songs because I was trying not to kill anything in the process and so if you I figured if I could record their their sounds then I wouldn't actually have to kill them and take them back in a jar of formaldehyde so so I was going all around the country doing this and I was in the Amazon outside Manaus and a bunch of people from World Wildlife Foundation were doing a project on they were basically studying the decrease in the bird population in the forest. And they had nets up in the forest, and they were catching the birds and banding them and counting how fast they were declining. In other words, how fast they were dying due to human impact in the Amazon. And I thought this was totally depressing because you're just sort of seeing how bad we are without being able to like think about how to change things. And so yeah, I was doing my work and I was in the middle of nowhere and with people in a little hut and they were poor people and I was standing outside the hut and looking at their field. They had slashed and burned the field in order to plan, in order to live, in order to have food to live and a little money. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, if we're going to just not watch everything die, we have to figure out how to turn things around. And in order to turn things around, we have to understand why humans are doing what they're doing. So it was that kind of moment of awareness that if I cared about the animals that I wanted to observe, then I needed to study people. And that was a pretty fundamental shift. And when I came back, I finished my master's in zoology and transferred to cultural anthropology. So there's an example of a, of a twist and turn. So you went from pumping drugs into mice to studying Arctic maritime interactions between peoples and ships. I have to admit, when you said initially it's a lot of twists and turns, I was not expecting that level of pivoting. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned something interesting during that. You study people 
in order to reflect on our relationship to animals. Would you be able to elaborate on that a bit more? Because I think that's really interesting how you, you mentioned that was a pivotal shift. It's very interesting how you came to that sort of mindset. Yeah, well, you know, we're in the Anthropocene as the geologists, as some geologists are arguing, which means that we are now geological actors, right? It means that we are now, as a species, capable of affecting the planet as a whole. In this way, you know, the political ecology of water is about what's the politics? Because when I started out in ecology, you could go off to a place in the forest and just imagine that it was forest and and look at how the animals interacted. But every place in the world is now confined or somehow impacted. Even the faraway frozen Arctic is somehow impacted. Um, So you, you, you kind of... I'm, I'm trying to uh, figure out, well, let me just take a step back. There was a moment in Brazil when I was sitting on the floor of a forest in, in the dry northeast, and I got my one publication, my first and my only publication in zoology, which is about these butterflies that were dancing and clicking their wings. So I have acoustic communications of butterflies. But I was what I was doing was waiting for birds to come and sing so I could record them. I realized I was so frustrated because you can't really talk to a bird, right? They're far away, you know, and and you don't want to trap them to talk to them. And so I was kind of in a bind, and I was, you know, I'm a New Yorker, and I'm kind of talkative, and, and it was kind of frustrating. So I'm kind of finding my way around from another direction to try to see, okay, what is our relationship with animals? How can we have a relationship that allows them to be who they are and, you know, the opposite of the zoo. So in my future project, I think I really do want to go back to trying to think about birds and people on coasts and how they relate to the ocean and the bird life and uh, just really try to get a sense of that very deep but at the same time distant relationship between us and animals. How do you imagine the relationship between animals and humans will evolve in the Arctic in the coming years? How do you see that evolving, given your experience, not just in the Arctic, but around the world? Well, I'd like to think, and in answering this, I'm really relying on the work of the anthropologist Claudio Aporta, A-P-O-R-T-A, with whom I work on the Migrations and Mobility subgroup of the ISLA project. He has worked with the Inuit, and he has mapped the places, the ways that they traverse the icy terrain and where they go to hunt and to fish and to have um, gatherings and where they have lived before in a more dispersed way. So the idea that's kind of coming out of our group is that as we move forward into opening the Arctic to exploitation, that we really key into their knowledge of their relationships to animals, where animals migrate, for example, um, how they move around the landscape, um, which animals relate to each other and to humans and to how. And therefore, we can try to guide 
industrial development in directions that are least harmful? Is there a way to really take advantage of indigenous knowledge to create a world that allows Arctic life to persist as we know it? This show is a project of the Indiana University College of Arts and Sciences at the Minister. A special thanks to Dr. Kane today for taking time out of her day to speak with me. Editing, hosting, and mixing for this episode was done by Jonah. Our intro song is Night Owl by Broke for Free. Our outro song is Warm Up Suit, also by Broke for Free. Both of those were accessed and used courtesy of a Creative Commons attribution license via the Free Music Archive. On the next episode, Clay sits down with Dr. Brandon Barker. Together, they'll discuss how our myths and folklore influence our perceptions of animals. That's everything from why coyotes are sneaky to why snakes get such a bad rap in the stories that we tell. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.